This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and so much more. And this week, it's all about the money issue, focusing on who has it, how to get more, and in some cases, Carol, where to go. Right. Plus, the cover story details one man who's uncovering inequality in a whole new way. But we begin this week at the end. It's the magazine's back page. So the money issue this week offers up another way of comparing wealth over the ages. For example, Jeff Bezos's wealth versus that of John D. Rockefeller's and others. Tom Metcalf. I love this, this story so much because it really helps us graph out and math out, math right? out what wealth really means over time. Tom joins us from London. All right, so give us some perspective because we talk a lot about Jeff Bezos obviously being the richest person in history, now just the richest dude around right now <laughs> owing to his divorce. But what does it all mean when we look back 100 or so years? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. When you kind of draw back over the broad span of history, I mean, no mistake, Jeff Bezos is certainly one of the richest people ever, but he, he's certainly not the richest. And probably his greatest competition comes from another pair of Americans, so the robber barons, the John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie. And, and what we're trying to do with this piece is sort of look at what their net worth would be like if we could compare it as close as possible to each other. So not using inflation, which is often a, a method, but rather something called relative output. So we're looking at how much of the economy John D. Rockefeller had in comparison to Bezos. And, and to be honest, there's no comparison. What? Rockefeller's net worth today would be about $300 billion. Oh, so my That's nearly God. triple Bezos. Yeah, it's big money, right? Right, right. Because you're talking about the percentage of the overall economy. That's just fascinating. Um, Talk to us a little bit more about some of the comparisons you did. So, so we, we tried to go back as far as we could, basically. Yeah. And, and, you know, to be clear, the further you go back, the, the harder it becomes. And, and you have to get more and more inventive with your comparisons. But, um, you know, let's go right back to the beginning. We started with uh, Crassus, who, you know, there's a famous proverb out there, like the richest man in Rome. Uh, this guy's even before the emperors. And effectively, what we managed to do was, hey, we've got Pliny the Elder saying he was worth about 200 million uh, Roman coins back in the day. What does that mean in comparison to the Roman economy? And then, uh, and then we try and bring that up to date. And that would then give him a net worth of about 200 billion. And then halfway along, we go to medieval England. And you've got, some, uh, you've got Eleanor of Aquitaine, uh, sort of a, a queen who inherited vast lands. And she's uh, one of the UK's richest people ever. But in the comparisons to, say, Crassus or Bezos or Rockefeller, she had a pretty measly 25 billion. But that's really the fun thing about this. You, when you go across the whole scope of history, right. 25 billion looks pretty small beer, which is incredible when you think about it. Well, and Tom, when we think about this, too, we think about what the implications are for having this type of wealth. And I feel like right now, and, and this is a theme through the issue, it's about sort of what you have, how you made it, and what you're doing with it. What are the lessons, maybe, and you follow wealth all around the world, that Jeff Bezos can learn from some of his forebears when it comes to extraordinary wealth? Well, you know, I think it's, it's definitely temporary, so, so make sure, what, you know, you make the most of it. You know, a lot of the names I was looking at, to be honest, I'd never heard of before, before yeah. I embarked on this exercise. So, Alan the Red, I doubt many people know who he is. He, he's Britain's richest person ever. He had 200 billion, and he was effectively a, a cousin of uh, William the Conqueror. So, uh, I, I guess in the scope of human history, just make sure if you're lucky enough to land in this position, you, you really build a legacy out of it. Well, that's such a great point, right? Because when we think of the wealthy, as you said, we think about Jeff Bezos, understandably so, but we think about the likes of a Warren Buffett 
or Bill Gates, put them in perspective compared with, you know, other individuals in history uh, and using this relative output as a way of measuring wealth? So, so Bill Gates basically hit his peak wealth uh, around the dot-com boom. Uh, and in today's terms, uh, I calculate that to be about 200 billion. So that's more than Bezos uh, and about 100 billion less than, than Rockefeller. And Buffett's at about 100 billion under that scale. So, you know, these guys are in the top sort of 10, 20 of all, all time for sure. Uh, and that would be the other interesting thing is, is when you look at the list, it is, uh, you know, there's a lot more people from modern times, as it were, than, than in the past. And what that says about inequality is, is, is quite interesting. It sort of, it does seem to be going one way with more and more collecting uh, you know, with just fewer and fewer people. Well, and I think that's a really interesting point, right? That there's more individuals out there that have made a lot of money. I guess some of that makes sense because we've seen the global economy grow dramatically. Yeah, and, and that's also what's, what's driving it, right? So when you're looking at GDP in the past, I think when uh, Rockefeller died, the whole of the U.S. economy was something like $93 billion in, in $1937. Uh, and now it's, uh, what is it, 21 trillion? Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, it's a huge shift and it's quite incredible. And then the other thing we wrestled with is, you know, this comparison. I mean, how, how fair is it when you go back over the centuries? Like, would you rather be, you know, an ordinary Joe like me today, you know, with, with healthcare, with sort of uh, jets everywhere, or, or a Roman emperor who might have every single need you might need back in, uh, you know, 100 BC? But those, uh, you know, it looks like a pretty horrible life uh, in today's terms. It does feel like the Buffets, the Gateses and the Bezoses of the world are thinking about legacy. Maybe they don't want to be uh, Alan the Red and, and we'll see whether that turns out, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, to be honest, whenever I speak to you know, billionaires, I'd say they're almost entirely focused on succession and you know, how they're going to keep this wealth through the generations or at least put it to, to good use. And, and, you know, yeah, the Rockefeller is probably a great example. I mean, in New York, just down the road from Bloomberg, there's the, you know, the Rockefeller Center. People mm -hmm. still still go there every day. It still dominates the city in so many ways. And similarly, philanthropy, those foundations. Uh, I mean, perhaps the, the best lesson here is from Andrew Carnegie, who had this, you know, famous sort of proverb for life, spend a third of your life learning, a third of your life making money, which he certainly did. And then his last third, he, he endeavored to give it all away. Uh, and he came pretty close. I think he ended up with 30 million uh, left at the time of his death, which um, is still being spent today. That's Tom Metcalf. I loved this. I kept talking about this the weekend after this came out because measuring people's wealth against each other across the centuries, who knew? It's all about perspective. And we think about today, the world's wealthiest individuals. But if you take a look back, some of the folks that lived uh, many decades, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, they were a lot richer. Jeff Bezos, he's no John Rockefeller. That's all <laughs> I'm going to say. So many love to hear about the lives of the rich and the famous. In the money issue this week, we have one story that is actually about the life of one who is Rich and very famous, got that, in the South Korean business world, but he has been out of sight. This is a fascinating story about really one of the most important families in yes, the world, no and certainly in South Korea. Pat Regnier, he oversaw the whole money issue this week in Bloomberg Business Week. Take us to Seoul. So this is a story about power, and it's a story about taxes, right? So as we were sort of trying to survey the world of money and where money is, this is really an interesting story to focus on because it shows that the wealth you have isn't just about wealth. The uh, family behind the Samsung conglomerate uh, has, ab uh, has about uh, $15 billion in assets, uh, but is located in a country with one of the biggest estate taxes uh, in the world of about 50%. So 
when the chairman who's been incapacitated passes away, there's a question about what's going to happen to not so much to the money, but to control of this complex web of Samsung companies. So let's talk about that web, because I think people think Samsung, they're like, oh, TVs and cell phones. It's much bigger than that in a way that I think almost defies description and and there's not a really good kind of Western analog to this. Right. These family conglomerates are very important in in South Korea and um, are both, uh, you know, important in business and uh, politically yeah. important. Yeah, in society even, yeah. R- right, but if you sort of try to figure out, like, well, so how do you actually control, uh, you know, this sort of web of companies? I mean, you'll, you'll see that Lee Kun-hee, uh, the patriarch of the, of, the, of the Samsung family, he owns a little less than 5% of Samsung Electronics, which is the name that, that, that we know. Uh, but that combined with a lot of soft power, a dense web of cross-holdings of different kinds uh, of different companies in the, in the vast Samsung network, right. sort of allows has allowed him to have control of this conglomerate but will that uh still be the case when the family has to first of all you know find the money to pay these taxes and also uh you know they'll have to manage this web of companies so pat talk about a little bit because we're they're possibly facing a what a seven billion dollar tax bill so that's where 15 billion dollars in terms of the wealth seven billion dollars that's significant that is big okay so if you have to deal with that but go back to as you said the father's kind of informal relationships that he has with so many of the companies and executives within that network, that has helped him really um, have a lot of power here. And that power doesn't necessarily, those informal ties will not necessarily pass on to his son, correct? And that's what they're worried about. Right. And, you know, uh, Jay Wiley, his son, um, you know, he, he has, he, you know, he doesn't have the stature of his father. And he's also had some pretty significant legal trouble. He correct. spent a year in jail. And a lot of this had to do with these efforts to, you know, solidify the family's control. Samsung wanted to merge, or rather, two of the Samsung affiliates, you know, wanted to merge, and they needed government approval for that. And Jay Wiley found himself caught up in uh, a, a scandal over that, spent some time in prison. He's, uh, you, you know, he's he's appealing that, but it remains a very divisive case. Where is his father? As I said, he's out of sight. Like <laughs> It's been a, several years. That's right. And, and sort of, you know, the state of his health is a, you know, is a source of of, you know, tabloid rumor and much spe- much speculation in South Korea. You know, the, the family says he's in stable condition and they, you know, they dismiss, you know, you know, rumors about the state of his health and they say the family will pay their taxes. Hmm. Well, and it's interesting to, you know, to go back briefly to Jay Wiley's legal troubles because they go right to the heart of this entire system that that you describe in this story that the, the Chibol, uh, mm-hmm. I believe, is the is the technical term for them, these family run conglomerates. And when Jay Wiley got into his legal trouble, it was really about what exactly are these and are they doing all the right things legally? Because these are not just important in South Korea, but as we've alluded to, they're very important companies globally. We think about Samsung as this round the corner, you know, innovative company mm-hmm. that has a huge amount of global influence. Right, and it raises questions, um, you know, for people in Korea about like, you know, who, who should be running these things, the professional managers of people or the sons and grandsons of people? All right. So kind of interesting. We talk about, all right, this chairman being out of sight. Um, Speaking of something else that's been out of sight, that is mega yachts in China. And that brings us to another story. I worked on that. I didn't see that pivot coming. Don't judge me. But let's talk about another story that's in the money issue. And this is truly about the mega yacht industry in China. 
out of sight. Not happening. And yet people thought that there's so many billionaires being minted in China. We thought, okay, they're buying lots of They're going to buy some boats. They're going to buy, yeah, big boats. Well, out out of sight is the right way to put it. It is very hard to keep a super yacht out of sight, as one of of the people we spoke to said. It's it's very big. It's on the water. It's right there. It tells the world that you have some money and you're you're buying toys with it. Huge no-no in China, or certainly has been the last few years. in In the last few years, it has not been a great time to be seen buying conspicuous toys. And um, that has been a blow to, uh, you know, this obviously niche industry of uh, building uh, super, uh, of building, you know, super long luxury yachts. Um, But, you know, there are always efforts afoot to find, to to find buyers. And we, you know, we spent some time with sort of the, the salesmen who, you know, wine and dine clients and sort of like, you know, try to show people, you know, what would it be like if you had a 75 foot yacht, a 100, you know, a, a 150 50-foot, 200-foot yacht. That- well, talk about what these sales guys did. I mean, it's pretty over the top. Right. So, you know, you, you, you throw a party, you hire a harpist to, uh, <laughs> to, to play music in the background while, you're, while, while your guests dine to a chef-prepared meal. Uh, you, bring, you bring aboard, you know, a French uh, sommelier. And, like, you know, this is, this is the floating life, you know, like yeah. people have in Monaco and Capri. Now, the problem is you can, you can buy that super yacht, but then, you know, having, having that kind of infrastructure to do that kind of thing on your yacht in China is actually a different thing than being able to do it in Europe, you know. Right. Well, and and that's a really interesting mm-hmm. point that you address in the story that culturally the Chinese buyer treats these yachts sort of differently even in the way they interact with them on a daily basis. You know, it's not like a lot of the Russian oligarchs who have yachts or some of the Silicon Valley billionaires where they're on it, they're they're literally yachting trips, around the they're world. Going places, run, yeah. You know, running into Carol and Ibiza <laughs> or wherever uh, that's gonna happen. They're literally like just going out, spending time for a day and then going back home. I mean, you, you know, I, the, you're you, a, a billionaire where the, wherever they're from. They might be, a, they might have a great time, sort of, you know, yachting around the Mediterranean, things like that. But it's it, the, the conditions for yachting are a little difficult around, you know, you know, coast of China. It's yeah. a little more difficult to maintain a crew. There are actually limits to the number of people you can have have on your Wait. have on your yacht, and some of them have to be crew, which means that you can't bring so many. Talk about that. <laughs> Twelve people on a yacht. If you've got one of these massive yachts, you easily have half a that easily in a crew, right? You're gonna so you, could, so you could bring on, you know, yourself, your wife, and four buddies, and then and, and then your crew. So that's the, the, that's kind of a husband. bummer for your party, and I'm sure we're kind of playing tiny violins here. That's finance editor Pat Regnier, and what an interesting story. We talk about the lives of the rich and the famous all the time, but again, this is a death watch in uh, South Korea, Samsung specifically, and it all has to do with an estate tax. And if we know one thing about the very wealthy, it's all about death taxes and, of course, yachts. <laughs> so money in elections, another angle in the money issue this week. Who knew elections in India, Jason, are among the world's most expensive and have been among really those that are very opaque, at least when it comes to donors' political contributions. It's a fascinating, fascinating story, really taking us inside real time Mm -hmm. what's happening there in India. Jeanette Rodriguez joins us from Mumbai. So, Jeanette, it's a very exciting time in India. These weeks and weeks that these elections happen across, the money angle, though, is a little bit different. Tell us about these bonds. As, as you just mentioned, uh, Jason, India's elections are one of the world's most expensive elections. Uh, they estimated to spend about seven billion U.S. dollars at this time around in the 2019 poll. To put it into context, roughly 6.5 billion uh, U.S. dollars was expect was estimated 
to be spent on Donald Trump's congressional and presidential races back in 2016. So by some estimates, India's election is the world's most expensive. Uh, much of this money, much of this money comes from a new funding instrument called the electoral bond. Uh, critics of the bond say it just legalizes what's called in India black money laundering. Black money is illegal donations, money stashed away without paying taxes in it, uh, unaccounted cash. And critics of these electoral bonds say that all they really do is they help uh, businessmen, they help crony capitalists launder black money in the guise of political donations. Uh, if, if you want some sort of background on what these bonds are, uh, the background to it really is that India's uh, elections have always been funded by a lot of accounted cash. This cash was never tax-exempt. So once the a, a businessman or, big, or crony capitalist would give it to a political party, it would be just unaccounted on the books. However, when Prime Minister Narendra Modi came to power back in 2014, he swept to power promising to rid the country of corruption. One of his big promises was that he would attack corruption. It would be a full frontal attack on corruption and graft. And electoral bonds or political funding was supposed to come within that ambit. Critics say it's done exactly the opposite. Uh, critics say that electoral bonds are a piece of paper which actually entrench corruption within the system. Give us a little history sure. on elections in India, right? There's always been corruption. There's always been, I think, a lack of transparency. And some of the donors say they do that kind of for their own protection. So give us a little bit of a history lesson about how elections have gone on in India. Indian elections have long been funded by unaccounted cash. Politicians say that anonymity is essential because donors that fund political parties are wary of political reprisals. Political parties say that the day they go, they, they lose power, well, they'll just, they'll just be vindictive governments who take action against any donors that actually voted, that actually funded different parties. So the electoral bonds are part of a system that actually legitimizes anonymity in, in uh, political funding in India. However, the previous uh, modes of political funding have not been tax exempt. Donors had to pay taxes on them. Electoral bonds are 100% anonymous, they're 100% tax exempt, and therefore critics say that they, should, that they should not be allowed in a democracy like India. Uh, critics allege that the political parties know the identity of the donors, the donors know how much money they're giving to the political parties, and really the only person left in the dark are the voters. This, critics say, is unacceptable in democracy, and therefore a lot of uh, watchdogs, a lot of observers, election observers, have asked the Supreme Court of India to actually clamp down on electoral bonds. They asked the Supreme Court that either electoral bonds should be banned completely or political parties should be mandated to disclose the identity of their donors to voters. And so, Jeanette, what happens next? I mean, where is it trending? You know, Modi uh, obviously will have a say in this uh, in terms of whether it, it uh, continues going forward. Where's the political will here to change it, or is this how it's going to be? Right now, the case is in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has asked uh, political parties to submit by the 30th of May, that is by the end of this month, details of all donations received via electoral bonds. That might not really have much impact given that on May 23rd, before the deadline, before the deadline, India is due to have election results. Uh, voters still continue to be left in the dark. If the Modi government comes back to power, as the exit poll suggests, 
Uh, it will really depend on the, on the Supreme Court to take a decision for electoral bonds because we need to remember that the electoral bonds are a creation of the Modi government. It has complete backing of the Modi administration. And it's unlikely that the Modi administration will scrap the instrument without the Supreme Court giving an order. However, the opposition party has promised that if it comes to power, then the opposition party says it will scrap electoral bonds well, completely. That's reporter Jeanette Rodriguez. And if we learned a few things about that story, Carol, it's that India's elections, they take a long time. They're complicated. And there are a lot of areas that are susceptible to corruption. Right. And they're also among the world's most expensive. Who knew about that? So some may call him America's top wealth detective for uncovering where the wealthy keep their money. His work, though, may prove to be critical to breaking the trends that have created the wealth disparity in the U.S. today. I think this is already my favorite story this week. This is a fascinating piece of mm-hmm. reporting, really taking us inside wealth in America yep. and around the world from a very different perspective. Ben Steverman is here with us in New York. Tell us about Mr. Zuckman. Gabriel Zuckman is only 32 years old. He is the former student of a guy named Thomas Piketty, who you may remember right. from his the surprise bestseller on inequality a few, few years back. And um, he, Zuckman comes came to the U.S. Um, after working with Piketty for for years. Sort of the heart of Piketty's work is 300 years of history on income and wealth, and a lot of the number crunching was done by this guy Zuckman. Um, so he comes to the U.S. and he um, starts to work on wealth in the United States and try to figure out what is really one of the biggest mysteries is like how rich are the people in the are the rich people in the wealthiest country in the world? Ben, talk about how he did that because I thought this was such an important distinction. It's wealth he's looking at, not income. And these are two very different things. Yeah, people talk a lot about income inequality. and But the thing about wealth is that wealth can sometimes build over time. It's kind of one of these things that can snowball. So income is actually a little bit more equally distributed than wealth. So the bottom half of the U.S. population basically has a negative net worth. And uh, because they are in debt, they have mortgages, they have credit card debt. And so uh, what he did was he, he and, and another colleague at Berkeley, who's also a very eminent economist, a little bit older, also French, Emmanuel Saez, they went into the IRS and they downloaded all this data on income because you tell you don't tell the IRS like how much money you have. You tell the IRS how much you're making each year. And what they did was this very meticulous process of turning that into wealth. So if they had if somebody has $100 of dividends from stocks, they use that to guesstimate mm-hmm. sort of how much wealth they have from stock in stocks. But it really required a lot of moving pieces because Zuckman's really his specialty really is taking not just one data source, but taking a bunch of them and creating sort of a constellation of information. So macroeconomic data, cross-border flows, um, some survey data, some estate tax data, crunch that all together and really figure out how wealthy are the wealthiest people. And they're pretty wealthy. Yes, yes. Um, he, When the paper first came out, it was really made an impression because he they was really one of the first uh, reliable estimates of the top 0.1%. So we talked a lot about the top, we always talked a lot about the top 1%, but that top 1.1% in 1980, they had about 7% of U.S. wealth get controlled. By about 2014, 20, about, about 2016 is the latest numbers, 20%. Big change. Yeah, so almost hmm. a tripling in that that segments share, whereas the bottom half is basically not budged. And so this is where it gets very interesting to those of us who follow politics and, and policy. 
closely because there is a pivot point, sort of a catalytic point, and it seems to come during the Reagan administration. At least that's what the data show. Help us understand what happened in the mid-80s. Well, there's a couple different interpretations of sort of what's going on here. One is the, the one that Zuckman does not subscribe to. One is, oh, this is just technology. This is mm-hmm. globalization, which rewards the winners in, in sort of this outsized way. Um, if you're smart, if you're resourceful, if you're lucky, you just get these huge rewards. And that's what's going on here. Zuckman's saying, well, look at the U.S. and then look at the rest of the world. Look at, compare, compare U.S. to Japan or France. Or, and the trends here are just so much more extreme. What happened here in the 1980s? Our top marginal tax rate went from 70% in 1980 to 28% by 1988. Um, there were unions got a lot weaker um antitrust enforcement got a lot weaker so some of the things that he's saying some of the things that have constrained um wealth inequality from getting worse um were basically loosened and 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 the wealth the rich have gotten a lot richer from it that's a crucial point though comparing the united states to other developed nations right we've all the whole world has been dealing with globalization uh and so it's interesting to compare how different nations have fared and as you say the U.S. in terms of the gap between the haves and the have-nots, it's really um, remarkable. It, it is. And, um, it, you know, his his argument is sort of a, one that is you can hear in Bernie Sanders' campaign and you can hear right. in Elizabeth Warren's campaign, which is this argument that... The and they well, like his data. They love it. You or know, this findings. this became, you know, the data that I'm talking about came out, The sort of the early versions came out in 2014, 2015, and it, they became the heart of Bernie Sanders' stem speech. So you've heard right. a lot of these statistics if you've heard a Bernie speech from, from 2016. Um, but, you know, Elizabeth Warren keeps making the argument that the system is tilted toward the wealthy. And, and that's sort of Zuckman's point. It's a little bit more academic, but it's basically like as you give the – you know, you lower taxes on the wealthy. What do they do with that extra money? One theory is, oh, well, that's an incentive to invest more and to have a more dynamic economy. The Zuckman's thing is, well, actually what it is, is it's a, it gives these people more power. It gives them more, more power to hire lobbyists, to crush unions. It gives CEOs an incentive to sort of tilt the, tilt the board in their favor and get these big pack, pay packages. You talk about wealth being self-reinforcing. That was one yeah. line that really just stuck with me. Yeah, and, you, and, and this is... Because they want to maintain, ahead. right? Use that money to maintain kind of the tax policies that are out there or the benefits to themselves, correct? And they can use their money to keep that in place. Yeah, and you've seen it. I mean, there's a lot of hand-wringing out there among all sorts of economists, left and right, about um, concentration in industry. So worker, there's less, workers have less power, not just because unions are weak, but also because if you want to work in a particular niche industry, there might be only two or three firms dominating right. that industry. Well, that's actually something that in some ways a policy choice that we've had we've allowed these companies like Facebook has bought up all these social media competitors for example so antitrust enforcement antitrust enforcement or lack thereof so when you talk about Gabriel Zuckman one of the things we're seeing here is a little bit of a trend among economists and and, uh, academicians, as they say, sort of a shift toward more advocacy and and activism in some ways, and really prescribing for politicians and and for policymakers where we should go. Tell us what they're saying we should do with this data. Yeah, I mean, and you go back, like, 
John Maynard Keyes or Milton Friedman, they were giving advice to politicians back in the day. But I think what's unique about Zuckman and his colleague Emmanuel Saez is that there some of these really their prescriptions are actually kind of radical. Right. They're talking about a wealth tax. Um, Elizabeth Warren is talking about it too, and a lot of other economists are really raising their eyebrows at that. Like, how would how would that work? And um, but yeah, they're they're out there advocating for this stuff, and they have a book coming out in, in early next year that is basically designed to be helpful to 2020 candidates who want to solve inequality. And that's a really important point, a for the timing in terms mm-hmm. of the 2020 election, and also when you synthesize in what we saw in the 2018 midterm elections, the rise of Alexandria. O'Connor Ocasio-Cortez here in New York, from here in New York, talking about raising that marginal tax rate back to where you mentioned it was in the 70s and 80s here in the United States. And we talk a lot on this show with our colleague Peter Coy about the Overton window and and sort of how the debate is moving toward things that a few years ago would have seen insane to, to talk about. How realistic is this, in your estimation, from the people that you talk to, that this might be a real part of the discussion? I think it really is about shifting the conversation, and you've really seen how much it's shifted just in the last, this year, really, um, when, you know, people are saying, uh, you know, people on the left, like Zuckman and, and um, AOC are saying, you know, let's, let's really hike taxes to an extreme extent. And then the sort of the people in the middle, you look at like Larry Summers, the former uh, right. Treasury Secretary, he's saying, well, actually, no, that would be bad. We, that would be disruptive. But we should um, put the same tax rate on investors that we have on workers. Five years ago, that would have been considered a pretty radical thing to, to propose. So, the, like the moderate solutions, I've also been shifting, and I think that's part of what um, Zuckman is going for. It's like he's trying to force the conversation and have a more creative response to inequality than we've had so far. And maybe it's starting to work, right? You talk about that they posted stuff online and people are starting to come back. Is it um, Beyonce's rule a little bit? But we've also seen a crackdown on overseas tax shelters. So maybe things are starting to slowly change. Yeah. You know, uh, he's really focused. He's been focusing, in addition to this wealth stuff, on um, corporations moving profits overseas. He has this very mathematical approach that he can apply to lots of different problems. And he's really focused on offshore tax shelters. Mm. And in offshore tax shelters, we really have seen change. Like the Panama Papers came out that really exposed a lot of that movement of money. Zuckman study, I think, also had an impact. He was showing that $7.6 trillion was stashed offshore. That's real money. That's real (laughs) money. And um, and so uh, he, I think he's seen some success in those areas, and now he's he's trying to make something happen in wealth. That's reporter Ben Steverman. This really was among my favorite stories in the magazine this week, as he profiles the individual who's uncovering wealth in this world. He's also taking a look at the wealth disparities and inequalities that are out there, maybe how to fix them. I really liked that exact point, that it was prescriptive at some point and very current given all the talk around the 2020 elections. Call it the pursuit of the holy grail of investing, a computerized stock picker that outsmarts the markets. There are a handful of investment firms that are coming very, very close, but it's not easy to beat the market, Jason. I felt like if I was writing a headline for this story, it would be the robots are coming, maybe (laughs) not as fast as we thought. Richard Dewey, it's a great piece in the money issue of Bloomberg Businessweek. So tell us what's going on, because we hear so much about these big names and hedge funds, especially they've been wildly successful and very profitable at using machines, but it hasn't been maybe as widespread as folks thought. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that's a general theme um, in industry as well, that uh, the robots aren't coming quite as quickly as we think. And it's certainly the case in finance. Uh, financial markets and financial market data just presents a whole host of problems that make um, learning from data and teasing out relationships very difficult. Well, kind of unpack that a little bit. Talk to us about why it's so hard because we, you know, we were like, there's so much data, we can figure this out. But yet the market is always moving, first of all, right? That makes it tricky. That's right. That's right. When you're thinking about uh, determining relationships. It's very difficult when a central banker, for instance, in Argentina comes in and says, well, the currency has been pegged to the US dollar. Tomorrow, going forward, it's not going to be pegged. Or interest rates for the last 100 years in the developed world have never gone negative. All of a sudden, central bankers say they are going to get go negative. And then there are a little more subtle changes, such as uh, stocks being priced in fractions going to decimals. And there's sort of always that little, um, those little subtle changes happening. Well, and Richard, one of the things you point out, it feels like a thread through the story, is this idea that computers essentially have to cope with humans, you know, <laughs> that like human behavior, yeah. human emotion, all these different things. And even in the age of AI and and machine learning and all these different things, we are all still unpredictable beasts. That's exactly right. And it's different than something uh, such as image recognition, where there's been a lot of success over the past decade. And something like image recognition, you can think about um, millions and millions in the case of Facebook, I think on the order of 400 millions of photos being uploaded per day, um, it's it's not easy, but it's straightforward to think about determining what's a dog, what's a cat, who's your brother, who's uh, your uncle. Whereas in financial markets, even if you're able to determine that, it's adversarial in nature. So someone else may be able to determine that and change those relationships right. and and change the thing you've found. Whereas in image recognition, what you've found is kind of the ground truth. Well, I love this whole idea, too, that as soon as a computer or an algorithm figures out a way to kind of beat the market or do better, right, another program comes in and either replicates what they're doing or figures it out. That's, that's exactly right. And um, it's one of the things I talk about a little bit at the end that's kind of a turn off for some researchers is yeah. that you find something, it's exciting, it works, but inevitably over time it's going to decay. Well, talk about that because I love that point. I mean, how much how much do we often talk about in the magazine that everybody wants artificial intelligence engineers, AI engineers, right? There's a real global race to get them in. And then a lot of them maybe don't want to work at a financial firm because they don't get to talk about what they're doing, right? These guys live potentially to, to publish, that's exactly right. Um, I think the the inability to publish is a big turnoff for top researchers. Uh, in the financial world. In the financial world. Um, and you can really think about it if you go into one of these top firms and you're there for eight or nine years and you come out and you've made some discoveries and people, maybe it's just your friends, maybe it's a recruiter says, hey, what have you been up to? You shrug your shoulders and say, I really can't say. You're like, I've been doing some stuff. I wouldn't even <laughs> tell you. But, exactly. uh, I can't. Yeah. How about those Yankees? Yeah. Exactly. And I think there's just a huge buzz for folks working at, at, for instance, a Google brain. They make a discovery. They publish the paper. It's talked about on social media and all of their colleagues and coworkers and even people at rival firms can 
look at the uh, discovery, talk about it, and celebrate it in a way. Right. You know, you mentioned Facebook earlier and sort of their ability to use some artificial intelligence and some machine learning in in their business. Social media also plays into a different part of this conversation, which is alternative data and sort of some of the other data sets of sorts or some of the other places that machines are looking to, to try and get an edge. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think everyone is is looking um, for an edge any way they can. And there's an awful lot of data. Um, satellites are taking pictures of parking lots every four hours and counting the number of cars. Like and an episode of billions. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, and but but I think that has maybe been overhyped a little bit from a lot of the people I've spoken with. In the for one reason. Um, that data is kind of ubiquitous now yeah. and it's available to everyone and there are dozens of data vendors selling it. So um, at the end of the day, you still have to wring signal out of this very noisy data set. Even if you have more data, you still have to. Well, and, and to your point about the parking lots, I mean, there was a story in the magazine last week about, you know, this company that is essentially selling that sort of data to everyday Joes like like us. So if we can access that, it's probably a lot right. less interesting to Jim Simons, right? That's right. That's right. And um, one of the people I interviewed in the story said that, it. In, in fact, this is maybe counterintuitive. He thought it was helpful for people that weren't as skilled at deriving signals from the classic data, that it could help level the playing field in a way. Yeah. So people that are really good at predicting future prices just from say price and volume data or some fundamental data, um, are, are that data, uh, the information that's contained in the parking lot data may just overlap with their data. That's Richard Dewey. And Carol, we talked so much about the quants on wall street, the big winners, the renaissances, the DE Shaw's of the world, but it ain't so easy, as you say. That's right, Jason. It's all about squeezing more from an investment opportunity. So this is the case of the missing money, some $1 billion last year. It's missing, Jason, from a bank in Mexico. Yeah, and that came to a surprise of the people whose money it was. Mm -hmm. David Welch, a fascinating story in this week's edition. He joins us from Detroit. So, David, how did you come upon this? Oh, it's somebody I've known for a number of years uh, because I've covered automotive manufacturing and labor. So one of the people interviewed in the story, one of the victims, his brother is a long time, actually now semi-retired labor attorney. And he put me onto the story and I interviewed his brother and then uh, just started finding more people who've had this issue with Monix. These are basically retired American expats living in typically San Miguel de Allende, although I've heard that there are some other victims in places like Puerto Vallarta. Uh, and basically, you know, you know, Americans decide, hey, I'm going to move to Mexico. The weather's nice. <laughs> San Miguel is very artistic, a nice climate. My dollar goes a really long way. And they moved down there and they... All of them basically started banking with their U.S. banks and getting money sent to Mexico. But getting actual cash, getting liquidity, was time-consuming. There were heavy fees, and after a few years, they all decided to bank locally. And that's where the trouble started. Uh, well, talk about, story, talk about a, yeah, exactly. Talk about who Monix is, this bank, and then what the issue was that they all had. 
Sure. So Monex, it's you know Grupo Financiero de Monex, and like my my I don't speak Spanish. I took French and German in college, <laughs> so uh, I probably butchered that, uh, but I think I did okay. But there are two sides of Monex. Okay, there's Banco Monex, which is just like a bank, and then there's the Casa de Bolsa, which is the brokerage house, and people had a, had uh, accounts in both. The trouble if your account was in the Casa de Bolsa is those are not insured deposits. The trouble if you had your money in the bank is Mexico only insures deposits up to $140,000. So that, that's problem number one if you're trying to get money back. But the whole real problem started here with this woman, Marcella Zavala-Taylor, whose mother is an American. She worked in the U.S. Uh, in California for a number of years, had great English, was Everyone described her as multicultural. She sort of took these people in, and uh, with her, you know, very good English, multicultural uh, knowledge and experience, and got them to think, okay, she's like an American banker. She's uh, a safe person to deal with. And uh, she would visit them on holidays. She would come over to their houses with coffee and, and pastries and that sort of thing. And she became a friend to many of these people. And then uh, about November, December. People are trying to get money from the bank, and they can't reach her anywhere. And by late December, early January, many of these people are realizing that their accounts were simply cleaned out. And um, it, 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 and she had disappeared for a number of months. These are people who've been yeah. banking with the bank for several years, right? And some of them actually Correct. got some decent returns on investments that they did through the bank. Did they? That, that's a big <laughs> question here, because what many of them are now realizing— At least their statement said that, right? Yeah, the statement said that, but this woman was sending out the statements, and they're now saying, the bank is saying that uh, she had falsified statements and that they weren't maybe getting those returns. Uh, another I issue is that she was telling the clients that they had dollar-denominated accounts, which means they would be protected from the devaluation of the peso. Monex is now saying no. So they're basically trying to settle with people. They've offered uh, some of the people I interviewed anywhere from 50 cents to 70 cents on the dollar. And look, as an American who banks with an American bank, I scratch my head and say, wait a second. Mm -hmm. Money right. was stolen from the bank in my account, and you want to settle? Um, you know, as an American, I think, okay, there's not a David Welch drawer at my bank where the teller reaches in and cleans that out, and I'm the only one who has a problem. Right. <laughs> when money is stolen from a bank, um, there, there, there's a fungible pile of money. Uh, that I should still be able to put deposits into and take withdrawals out of, even if somebody took from my account. It's, uh, you know, I, I liken it to, let's say someone steals my Amex card and buys a $20,000 Armani suit, and Amex calls me back and says, David, we saw on camera that you didn't buy the suit. So here's what we're going to do. We're only going to charge you 10000 for the suit you never got. Yeah. It's sort of like that. Um, so they don't have the protections we have here. It's, it's a big mess for these people. And David, the, the scope of this is pretty massive. I mean, we're talking about $40 million missing from as many as 158 accounts, according to your story. Right. So this was widespread. This isn't just taking advantage of a couple people. And the implication is that this probably wasn't just this woman acting alone, right? That's certainly the theory of the people who were ripped off. And, and some of them told me that Monix officials told them, never in writing, mind you, uh, that they didn't think this woman could have done it alone either. Uh, and, and some of the unauthorized wire transfers had names on them, and uh, these people just don't know who they are. So there's, look, the bank is investigating this. They've turned it over to Mexican authorities. But, but there are a lot of issues here. So if, if you're going to bank in Mexico, the example I just gave with, with Amex, uh, typically if if I went, uh, or somebody used my card to buy a $20,000 Armani suit in LA, uh, 
Amex kind of knows that I'm never in LA and I don't buy $20,000 suits, and they typically flag that transaction. Right. Mexican banking doesn't really do that. They don't have a way to track bad employees. They don't really flag suspicious transactions. Everything just happens and goes on day to day. Uh, you know, one of the people I talked to, uh, Kevin Carr, who is the U.S. Treasury's representative in Mexico monitoring fraud uh, for the U.S. Treasury Department, said that. Bad employees can rip off people in one bank and move on to the next, and they don't track it the way uh, you know, the SEC or the banking regulators or FINRA would in the U.S. Like these, these people just keep moving around and finding new victims. So uh, she didn't move to another bank, but she'd been doing this, uh, obviously, for uh, or setting this up, it seems like, for a number of years, because the victims were telling me they were, there were months where they wouldn't get statements over the past five or six years. Uh, they, when they finally did get their statements, there were suspicious trans, uh, transactions going back several years. And what their theory is that uh, this woman, Arcella, was basically, she was, you know, here and there taking money out of accounts. And if somebody needed cash and she couldn't cover, she would take it from one account, put it into another. That's where you kind of get into the Bernie Madoff scheme. Right. Scams. It feels a lot like a Ponzi right? scheme yeah. here. And then eventually, it seems like the. Uh, you know, that the jig was up in late December where she'd either cleaned out all of the accounts or could no longer cover, and she just took off. Now, she's actually back in San Miguel, uh, Dale and Dave. And, and I interviewed her very briefly, and I interviewed her mother. Her mother would just sort of cryptically say, Monix also has something to do with this and wouldn't say anything more. Marcella said she was going to do a full interview with me. I was emailing with her, and I said, look, I have Monix's story. I have your client's story. Everybody blames you. I, I, I need your story here. Let's talk. And she agreed, and then she got on the phone and said, Due to advice of my attorneys, uh, I can't say anything. Wow. I'm living in San Miguel. Goodbye. <laughs> that was the end of it. So she's back in town. Um, and, and, uh, but right. apparently not working at Monix. But, uh, and everybody is, uh, she is facing charges in Mexico. That's David Welch joining us from Detroit. Fascinating story. He had some folks tell us about what was going on, right? In terms of people running into troubles, uh, putting their retirement funds uh, basically in Mexico. Well, and I liked the way he got into the story, you know, sort of the original reporting came from people he knows exactly. through the auto industry. So you never know where a story is going to lead you. So, Carol, part of the money issue takes us to a place that people might not expect when it comes to art. You think about going to a museum, right. looking at it on the walls your with your fellow gallery. patrons. You know, I mean, I know how your many <laughs> homes are in terms of hanging your art. Yeah. But many people their art ends up in Freeports. It's called Freeports. It's something we learned uh, new this week. Hugo Miller is in Geneva to tell us exactly what we're talking about. What are Freeports, Hugo? Freeports are, Freeports get a bad name. They are, a, in, in theory and in practice, up to a point, a perfectly legal way for people to store art free, essentially, of tax. The free refers to the duty-free or tax-free element. The ports refers to the fact that they're essentially dry land, massive dry land storage facilities for art, you, you name it, anything that's essentially valuable. So wait, wait, wait. All right, stop right there. How does it work? I mean, I would love to store things tax-free or have, you know, expensive artwork, right, that I can store somewhere tax-free. Okay. How, how does this exactly work? So the example I gave in, in the piece I wrote for Business Week and an example I give for the legal use of a free port is, let's say you, Carol, uh, billionaire, have a couple of uh, pieces of art worth uh, $10 million each, mm -hmm. and you can't decide whether you want to hang it in your Aspen chalet 
or your uh, Paris Pied-à-Terre or your New York Brownstone. Instead of, let's say, taking that Jackson Pollock that's worth 10 million and moving it from one to the next to the next, in which case you incur uh, import uh, duties mm -hmm. on each time you move it, you just park it semi-permanently, or at least for, for, for a period of time, in a free port. Uh, and A, it's secure, you don't have to worry about theft, and B, more importantly, you're not incurring those import duties on each occasion. Now, the bad thing is that you don't get to see the art unless you go to the free port to visit it. Right. So why would somebody use it? Well, art, art, art as we know, has become a real, real financial you know, instrument mm -hmm. in, in the last 20 or 30 years. And there are pieces of art. In fact, there's one that, that I can talk about, but it's been a disputed piece by Modigliani uh, that was you know, worth a few thousand um, 50 years ago. And, have, and like many, so many pieces of art have exploded in value. So people are buying these not necessarily because they love the piece, but because they've realized that it's a savvy investment um, and in some ways is obviously less volatile than, than your average stock or bond. Right. Well, and, and that gets to a really interesting point, too, because we're seeing much more art mm -hmm. traded and traded and bought and sold for extraordinary prices just in the last couple of weeks. You know, we saw the Coons uh, sculpture you know, sold for a record. We saw a record amount paid for a Monet because there's and what's important about the the free ports is that there are some transactional elements to this as well right this is a way for people to yeah. buy and sell yes and then then there's even the salvatore mundi the record of the mother of all leonardo da vinci paintings that sold for some 600 million after changing hands for 200 million five years earlier but and this is the problem is is that um they are changing hands um but physically not moving staying put in these free ports being sold um, uh, th uh, by essentially uh, shell companies right. and being parked indefinitely in the free ports. So essentially you have very, very little accountability. And yes, the free port uh, operators will say, we closely document everything that enters or exits the free port. The trouble is what happens in between. And that in between can be literally decades. Well, and that in-between also has a cloak of anonymity in many mm -hmm. cases. You mentioned the shell companies, and so someone doesn't really have to put their name on a transaction. They just have to create something that may obscure who they actually are, right? Sure, sure. I mean, and, and I pressed this when I went back to just recap some of the, the basic facts about all the free ports. I did ask each of them... Um, you know, have your rules on beneficial ownership changed? And there's one in Luxembourg that, that does insist on disclosure of the so-called beneficial owner, which is jargon for, who, is it Jason Kelly or Carol Massar who owns that, that uh, $20 million uh, Modigliani? But otherwise, you're looking uh, at a situation in which almost all free ports only require you to disclose the name of an owner. And the owner can be XYZ Corporation uh, and, and, and nothing more. So it's very hard to actually figure out who owns these uh, and have they been sold because until they enter the f exit the Freeport, uh, they might have changed hands once or twice or three times. Hugo, I love you even more because you said my last name like my ancestors did. So you're like, I I'm endeared to you. What's interesting <laughs> is you see the wealthy, right? They're buying art because it's, it's, it's figuratively uh, a great storage of wealth, right? And then they tap into these free ports because literally it's a great place to store your art, correct? Correct. You know, I think I'm just interested about some of the logistics. I mean, these are really high-tech places. You need a retina scan in some of them to get into them. Tell us a little bit about these actual facilities. Some of them are huge. Some are huge. Um, the newest ones are actually some of the smaller. Bigger is not necessarily better. The newest mm -hmm. of all that just opened last year in, in, in right 
I mean, a few miles from you guys in Manhattan, um, operated by a company called Arsis. Uh, and they they say they max out at 110,000 square feet because it's just in the event that anything did go wrong, uh, you're limiting your liability insofar as operating a facility that's 100,000 square feet, not, not, not 500,000 square feet. That's Hugo Miller. And a fascinating story, Carol. We talk so much about the great museums of the world. And here we have amazing works of art essentially hiding yeah. and hiding from the tax man, too. Or it's where the wealthy are storing their wealth, <laughs> to go. some extent. From obvious places that attract investors to not-so-obvious places, we've got a pair of stories in the money issue. Editor Brett Beagut here now to talk to us. And first up, we've got the unusual, right? Let's go to <laughs> New Zealand. The Maori people, they've got a little bit of a different take on how to invest their money. They've been pretty successful. What's going on down there? Yeah, they've been very successful. Um, so this actually, you know, stems from we go back to colonization actually in New Zealand, and in 1998 the government decided to um, finally settle with the uh, the tribes or the iwi as they call themselves. Uh, and uh, in 1998, one of the iwis um, called the Engai Tahu, they received about a little over $100 million, about $112 million. Um, not all the iwi settled at that time, but they decided to. Uh, and they have, uh, since the inception of the fund, uh, where they've invested this money, they are now worth, the tribe is now worth about $1.3 billion. So since inception, they've uh, generated about a 15% return, which is pretty incredible. Well, talk about how they did that, right? Because they actually looked to some well-known endowments, right? And yeah. their strategies yeah. to figure it out. Yeah, they did. So they looked to the Ivy Leagues <laughs> in the U.S., which is where a lot of people look. Uh, they looked specifically at Yale, um, not surprisingly, and at Harvard. And their goal was to really try to create intergenerational wealth. Um, they weren't looking for quick returns. Right. There are 60,000 people, uh, members of the Iwi, the Ngaitao Iwi, and they were looking to sustain this for generations and generations. So they've been very successful in doing that. They made an early investment in a, a sort of retirement community. Um, that was very profitable for them. But what, where they really made their money is in tourism. Hmm. Um, a lot of people go to visit New Zealand would never know that the companies – like one company is called Shotover Jet and they provide these very fast, speedy rides down rivers like jet boat rides. So that company is owned by the Ngai Tahu and they've made most of their money in tourism, some in, pro in commercial and residential real estate um, and other ventures, but mostly in that way. Well, and it's interesting as you as you point out, and obviously this is the sort of thing that gets the attention of our listeners and viewers who are familiar with the endowment-based uh, model, but it really is this idea of don't get caught up in short-term returns. Invest for the long term. So if you're David Swenson at Yale, probably one of the best-known endowment managers, probably the best-known endowment manager and one of the most successful, you know, he looked to alternatives. He mm -hmm. looked to a portfolio that may be a little bit non-traditional, and that seems to be what they did as well. Yeah, I mean, they own forests. Yeah. Right. You're not you know <laughs> knock down a tree. It's yeah. gonna take a while for that tree to grow back. But you know these are are the kinds of investments that they've made. Um, and tourism, right? New Zealand is probably always going to be a place that people want to come and visit. And when they visit, they're going to want to do outdoor stuff. And um, so they're invested in things like whale watching. Uh, they're yeah. invested in again this this the jet boat hiking things of that nature uh, where they're using the land, we're using 
uh, what New Zealand has to offer and 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 becoming very profitable. They're, they sound like they're incredibly smart in terms of there are other tribes, right, that are yeah. still waiting for settlements from the yeah, government. These right. guys were like, let's take the money, let's start doing it. But they also, I think, had a provision that said that they kind of get a part of future settlements too. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's a really good point. So they decided to settle uh, 20 years ago. Yeah. Not all of the iwi decided to do that. Um, the largest iwi uh, decided not to, and there's sort of been some uh, intra-iwi squabbling and fighting about whether to do that. And because of that, they're worth a lot less. But yes, basically they settled, and they get 16% of all future settlements. And that's amounted to all, millions and millions and millions of dollars for them. So they sort of said, look, we got to look forward. We can continue to look back, but right. 20 years ago, let's start now. And they've been very successful doing that. And you do wonder if, as these sorts of negotiations candidly continue to happen around the world, mm-hmm. the United States uh, and beyond, whether this becomes something of an interesting model. All right. So let's bring it back home yeah. to New York City. A more obvious story. Actually, perhaps. exactly. The more obvious story is just a couple blocks from where we're sitting here in Manhattan an iconic, iconic building, the Plaza yeah. Hotel, uh, written about, talked about, photographed. Spent my wedding night there. <laughs> wow. Hey, there you All go. Right. All, All right. right. <laughs> Got very personal. Sorry. Um, in any case, it's Great well known in part because the current president of the United States owned it at some point, and the sale of this building is the subject of this tale in the magazine. I have to say, I felt like I knew a fair amount about New yeah, York yeah. real estate. The ins and oh outs of this story yeah. are amazing. Yeah. Take us there. Yeah, it's incredible. Julie Setow in a new book called The Plaza. We have an excerpt from it. And we look at uh, when Donald Trump in 1988 uh, purchase, purchases the, um, the hotel and uh, borrows a lot of money to do it. And basically gets completely burned down with, <laughs> with debt. And in the mid-90s, Citibank is like, hey, we got we to gotta unload this thing. Um, so Citibank says, look, we're going to try to find some buyers here. But Trump's original fixer, a guy named Abraham Wallach, uh, so predates Michael Cohen. He was Michael Cohen before Michael Cohen. Michael, Michael Cohen, Cohen before Michael Cohen was Michael Cohen, right? He says, well, look, if I can find us a buyer, then you might be able to still – involved here. Uh, so he looks to Hong Kong and he looks to the Kwok family. They're uh, major property owners there. And he invites um, one of the three Kwok brothers to come over, stay in the plaza, enjoy the hotel. With his family. With the family. Residential and we're gonna, suite. Right, we're going we're gonna to take, up, right? take you guys shopping and we're going to go golfing. And uh, Walt goes up to, to get them one morning and they are trapped in their hotel room. The door is stuck. They have to – Wallach has to call security. Yeah, not stuck like, oh, you just no. kind of jimmy it a little bit. No. I mean they are trapped in this They're room. They're trapped in the room. So he comes up with the security guards. They have to hatchet their way into oh. the room. Not shockingly, um, Kwok family decides uh, they're they're going to pass, um, which makes sense. So Citibank goes out and and finds two other uh, – two, two buyers, um, the the Quack family of Singaporean uh, billionaire and uh, Prince Alwi, a uh, mm-hmm. very familiar name. And they team up and in 1995 eventually buy the plaza. And that's really the first time that the hotel is in foreign hands and it's been in foreign hands ever since. But wait, all right, step back before those guys finally, you know, sign on the bottom line and they own the hotel, take it from President Trump. I mean, Abraham Wallach, right? Yes. He was like a he was sleuth sneaky. a he little was, bit. He was sneaky. So yeah, this, this is uh, amazing. So once... 
uh, th- so the 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 Quex and um, Alweed, they are actually conducting the negotiations to buy the hotel in the plaza. And it turns out that there is a secret room off of the presidential suite that he knew about, Wallach. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting in that room listening to the negotiations while this is going on. And uh, So eavesdropping. Eavesdropping, we, we could call it charitably. And <laughs> uh, he decides that every time uh, they call a bank to sort of discuss a loan for their purchase, he's going to call the same bank and request the same amount of money just to confuse the bankers. Finally – Trump, who when, when this fiasco happens with the quacks, he actually went around firing, trying to fire people at the hotel who didn't even work there. They were guests. Right. He says, look, we got we to gotta cut this out. Wait, wait. But first, doesn't President Trump or somebody say, wait, fire, fire or something? Well, right. So they tried all sorts of tactics. They, they basically said that there was a fire in the building to vacate the premises. I mean, they pulled to every – shake every, up their negotiations. They, they, Wallach and Trump did what they could to prevent Citibank from deciding who was going to be the next owner because I think they knew that they would be cut out at that point. And that is essentially what happened. Well, and it's a fascinating window in – into, as we said at the top, sort of an an iconic building. And it does represent in some ways wealth. And we've been talking so much about that in this entire money issue. It's sort of the epitome. It's emblematic in in some ways. And that was one of the reasons it was so attractive to Trump in the first place, who I believe bought it from his now very good friend Tom Barrick uh, back in 1988. <laughs> right. So he you know, buys it for an insane amount of money. I mean, even at the time, people thought that what he paid for it, which I believe is about $425 million, was outrageous. Bonkers. Nobody thought this was a right. good idea. But the plaza represents much more than just the money that it's worth. It's an icon. Uh, it's an iconic hotel. When it opened in 1907, it was hailed as the most opulent. And in many people's eyes, it, it still retains that. Even though really since the mid-90s, the hotel is now just a boutique hotel. Yeah. They've made it. There's a large retail presence. There's um, condominiums, uh, which is actually Trump's idea to turn it, the top floors into condos. And uh, he could have potentially made a lot of money in that way, but it didn't get realized until well after he had sold it. But I remember the headlines, too, because as you said, this was one of the iconic buildings, certainly in the United States. And if you think about iconic buildings globally, I think of the Ritz in Paris, I think of this building. But for it to go from U.S. ownership Mm -hmm. into foreign hands, like it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And that's really in 1995. That's the first time it happens. Uh, You have a, a billionaire from Singapore and you have Saudi prince buying the hotel. But since then, it has actually not been in U.S. hands. It was sold to an Israeli condo developer. Then there's the whole saga with the, the sort of embattled Indian businessman who's actually mm-hmm. running the hotel from prison. Um, and now uh, it's actually owned by the uh, Qatari government. That's editor Brett Began, who oversaw the money issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine this week. And just fascinating stories, right? Looking at who has the money, how it's being earned, how it's being measured, and what it says about our society overall. Well, and I loved ending on that story mm-hmm. because it's a little close to home here, just a few blocks away from us at Bloomberg headquarters, the Plaza Hotel. What a story of our time. Still very relevant as we try to figure out where the money is and where it may be going. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business this week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. Can't catch us live? Get our daily podcast for the ride home. Download, subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. That is on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.